This morning's first reading is from Romans 1, verse 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith and for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel. That's my godson, by the way. The Lord be with you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be you, Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, you've embraced us as your children because your son became a child May we then embrace him as our own, who has saved us from our sins, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. By now, you've probably been uh, listening and overplayed your favorite Christmas playlists. Some of you probably even started as early as October listening to Christmas music. And Christmas music is still a a cherished and important tradition in our culture, despite how irreligious we are today as a society. In church, especially, we, we love and cherish our Christmas carols. It's a long, holy a tradition for us. Now, here's a question, and feel free to answer this. What do our Christmas carols usually sing about? What do our Christmas hymns sing about? Jesus. <laughs> There's Jesus. That Sunday school answer is his birth, right? The mystery of the incarnation. You want to be more theological. But next, 
to, to Jesus in our songs is Mary. Yes, that's right. Next to Jesus is Mary. See, no birth without mom. We, we also sing, yes, about the, uh, the star of Bethlehem. Very twinkly, very magical. The wise men, gifts, shepherds, sheep. Uh, and then, perhaps even least of all, there's uh, Joseph, barely mentioned, really. Each year, Jesus and Mary, they, they get the spotlight, and then Joseph gets to stand behind the curtains. Even in a lot of Christian iconography through the ages, Mary and baby Jesus, they're mostly popularly depicted together. And then occasionally there are these icons of the Holy Family, whenever they're portrayed, they get Joseph to come in for the picture. Come on in, Joseph. I've yet to see a Christmas pageant or play where Joseph even gets to say a word. (laughs) Now, I mean, I speculate. This is not a scientific study, but I speculate this became the case because a lot of what we have and what we know on Christmas comes from Luke's gospel. A bulk of our Christmas traditions comes from Luke. And Luke pays a lot of attention to Mary. So Mary takes center stage. She has a lot of lines. She, we even get to hear her sing and pray and even rebuke Jesus, the teenage boy, later on. And then Joseph, not a peep. We don't get a word from Joseph. Even in Matthew, what we just read, Joseph has no lines. Again, Luke focuses on mom, but Matthew focuses on dad. And that's probably the case because Matthew was writing mostly to Jews. And for them, uh, fathers and ancestral lines are very significant for them. But despite having no recorded words from Joseph at all in all of the Bible, he was not at all just behind the scenes. Just sort of an important figure without anything to do, idle in the background. No, as James had read from our gospel, Joseph takes center stage in Matthew and he is so active, he is moving, he's dynamic, he is thinking, he is dreaming, he is pivoting, he's making all these uncomfortable decisions as things keep changing for him. He doesn't say a word, but he is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. In Matthew, Joseph is the one making things happen. In Matthew, Joseph makes the Christmas story possible from a human standpoint. Now, he probably wasn't aware of it then, but Joseph was doing all the upfront work to protect and preserve the literal seedling of God's salvation, his promise in his wife's body that was declared long time ago, carrying them along this dark and treacherous path in a very violent world that they inhabited. In the gospel, Joseph makes all the big calls. He makes all the big risks. He makes all the hard decisions. And he took charge to care for and protect his family as best he could. Being the best father he would know how to be with the little and strange info that he had. And all of that from his very weird dreams. Most of us forget our dreams, but he took that with him. Now let's step into his sandals, so to speak, and we feel for the guy as it seemed that he was just rudely tossed into the salad spinner of the mystery of God's salvation. As Joseph's own plans were upended, his own expectations to live a quiet, pious, religious life with his family, 
to keep going a business. They were dashed. And yet Joseph buckled in for every sharp and surprising turn that came upon him as faithfully and fearfully as he could. And Joseph is actually a parable of how we live as Christians today. It's no different for us today as it was for Joseph and his family. See, whether you believe in the Christmas miracle, in the virgin birth, whether you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not, we each here right now have been brought by God's grace, if you believe in grace at all. We each have been brought here by God's grace into God's plan of salvation, where it often feels for us like we're just tossed about by the mystery of His will. And yet, and yet we're called to buckle in and for those sharp and surprising turns as we keep faith, we keep fear of Him who is still with us. Emmanuel, God with us, through the same dark, treacherous path in a yet still even more violent world that we inhabit. So that's what we'll be reflecting today. That's it. That's just that one question. How do we buckle in for those sharp and surprising turns, even as we feel tossed about in a salad spinner of life, so to speak? Let's get into our story. Now, unlike uh, in Luke, Mary here is passive, merely a plot point. She's just a plot point to get the story going. Doesn't mean that she's not important. But at this time, Joseph and Mary, they were already married, but they weren't living together. Because it was customary back then for couples to live apart for a year. Because it gives time for the husband to prepare a home, to build it literally, to set his house, his work, his finances in order. Now sometime within this year, Joseph gets to visit Mary, and then he finds out the absolute worst news. We don't know if Mary got to immediately tell him, first thing, or Joseph saw something different about her. But he naturally presumes that Mary had been unfaithful. And, but being a just man, he decides to spare her from public scorn and plans to just quietly divorce her. So at this point, Joseph only knew. I mean, we, they, we know in Luke, there's been months that Mary had to grapple with the angelic announcement, spending time with her cousin for months. But Joseph knew nothing of this. Only what he knows is that he's having to start all over again. His wife just cheated on him. And it's her mess that she made, but that he has to clean up after her. We don't know the timing of it all. Even Mary got to explain herself, defend herself. But even if she did, we can reasonably say that Joseph did not believe her at all. And how could he? Pregnant by the Holy Spirit? An angel told you that's the best you could come up with? In verse 20, it says that this is a very short clause. It's just a clause that goes into the next thought. As Joseph considered these things, as Joseph considered these things, it's a short clause. But that just means that it was, this was not a no-brainer quick decision for Joseph. He, he waffled even in what he knew to be the right decision because it was a painfully difficult decision to make. In his mind, what if, what if Mary was telling the truth? 
I, I know Mary enough that she wouldn't be making up something like this. But how could this happen? She is pregnant. She totally cheated on me. I mean, what are the odds of this being the spirit and the angel? How could this be true? There's no way. How could she do this to me? On and on in his brain, he considered these things. Now, Joseph only had three options at this point, and they're all super tough. The first one, go public and shame Mary. And he wouldn't be wrong to do it. It just wouldn't be merciful. That would not be right. It was not in step with his own character. He was a just man. He was God-fearing. He loved Mary enough, even what she had done, according to his feelings. That wouldn't be right. His second option, divorce Mary quietly. This is more reasonable. I mean, how could Joseph, a reasonable thinking man, entertain the impossibility of a miracle, spiritual, angelic conception? Mary, clearly you broke your vows. You destroyed this marriage, and that needs to be formalized now, and, but no one needs to know. You'll just have to maybe bear the consequences later on, but I will be, my hands will be clean. That's a reasonable decision. Or the third option, stay with Mary and then bring up the child that isn't his as his own. Now to choose this, Joseph would be going above and beyond what was needed of him. That wasn't necessary. That would be so much of a huge stretch for him. So he knew to do the right thing. Spare Mary, separate from her, and even then, we know that he wasn't 100% sure. Something was not right. This is not Mary, but is it? He was still considering these things. But then, sudden relief came when an angel had visited him in his dream. Joseph gets more information, but not a whole lot more. With more info, actually came more questions. If Mary did get to explain herself earlier anyway, Joseph now knows that she did not lie. He just did not believe her. So he wakes up, and he's now probably feeling three things, at least. Big relief, a bit of guilt, and a like a, a huge amount of fear. There's relief. It it wasn't his decision to make after all. Right? Apparently heaven decided for them, and that's a huge burden off his back. He doesn't have to do that dirty work, so to speak. But then he's feeling now a bit of guilt. He didn't believe his wife, if ever Mary got to say anything. But then this is now the lingering sense of fear for him, a foreboding. What does this mean? Who is this kid who's going to save God's people from their sin? There's prophecy involved. Who is this child? More information, a heck ton more of questions. But by ridiculous faith, Joseph obeys the angel's command. He takes the biggest risk and brings Mary home with him. Does not consummate until the child was born. And then on that day, Joseph names the child Jesus. Joseph names the child Jesus. That wasn't his way of just obeying the angel's word. At that time, he was legally adopting Jesus as his own, a child who wasn't his, because kids inherit their father's name. Naming Jesus, Joseph is declaring 
to that child, I don't know whose kid you are. I don't know who you are. But you are mine now. I will be your father. I will raise you now as my firstborn. You who are not mine. Now if Joseph had not adopted Jesus. Yes, Jesus is adopted. If Joseph had not adopted Jesus, Jesus would have been cut off from the line of Israel, cast aside as illegitimate, fatherless, without a stem linking him to the root, without lineage, without identity, without a future. Socially speaking, Joseph rescued Mary and Jesus. Joseph rescued Mary and Jesus, from being cut off from the family, the fortune, and the future of Israel. He did not know what he was doing, but he took that leap of faith, that biggest risk to take a child who wasn't his, claim it as his own, adopted the Savior of the world. We learn from Luke that Jesus was, in fact, genetically from the line of David through his mother, Mary. But he would have not been counted legally David's descendant until he was chosen and received by a male descendant of David, Joseph. A father adopted him into his ancestry. Jesus was grafted, was grafted into the root of Jesse. So Jesus, you could say, was twice the son of David by birth genetically and by, more significantly, by adoption. Son of God. Only begotten of the Father to earth, adopted by our humanity. An act of faith, an act of fear, an act of obedience. A life that's been embroiled in the toss of the salad spinner of God's mystery, adopted the Son of God. This is the Christmas story. And it seemed that all that Joseph did in the end was just a simple sequence of events and decisions he made as per angelic instructions. But really, if we sit with Joseph, he had to wait for months with just that information of a dream that we often forget. He had to sit with that little information, still with questions and doubts and fears. Along the way, all the way to the ninth month, Joseph would have waffled in his resolve to keep believing the word of an angel, keeping faith so ridiculously every day, each week, as months rolled on until the day Mary gave birth. What will Joseph do? Would he remember the dream? Was he just making it up in his brain so that he doesn't have to make that difficult decision? He just convinced himself? Would he remember the angel's words? Would he still believe? Would he obey? Again, this is a parable of our Christian life, your life right now, my life right now. Even with way more information that we have in the Bible, we still have questions and we still have the same fears, same doubts. And still we suffer the same, and perhaps even more. But do we keep taking God at his word? Here's a question for you. Do you believe God as you've read him in the Bible? Do you believe the words that you read, perhaps you've read this morning, 
maybe later on, or it's been such a long time since you've read the Bible, whatever it is, you've heard of it in church, do you believe God's Word when you perhaps did when you were 12, 4, maybe you just believed it now? Will you believe it later on? Remembering and doing God's Word, for however long we must tarry and endure, as days roll into decades, as our own discomfort congeals into despair, even as our eyes of faith, it will grow cataracts, and we will see very dimly as we age, as we are embroiled in a lot of suffering and the wear and tear and the attrition of life. Will we believe? How do we buckle in for those sharp, surprising turns, the salad spinner of this life? We do so like Joseph, trusting in the nearness, the proximity of our God who is still with us and who was with us in such a way as for himself being tossed, tossed about by the changeful whims of his people and circumstances. See, God himself, he bared himself open to the indignity of being tossed aside as a bastard. He became, he chose to become fatherless in regards to his humanity. He opened himself up to being received when he was not received, to be adopted when no one would take him by the will of a wayward husband, fearful and flustering, being being bestowed an identity. God was being bestowed an identity and in a future by a human father. And then he found belonging and home in a world that did not know or prepare for his advent. And then ultimately, God himself was ultimately, as absurd as it is, swallowed up by death on the cross. He embraced it. Swiss theologian Karl Barth wrote this. It's going to be a bit of a long quote, but um, follow along with me here. It's a profound statement. God's high freedom in Jesus Christ is his freedom for love, the divine capacity to bend downwards, to attach himself to another, and this other to himself, to be together with him. And in that sequence, there arises and continues in Jesus Christ the highest communion of God with humanity. God's deity or his divinity is thus no prison in which he can exist only in and for himself. It is rather his freedom to be in and for himself, but also with and for us. Let me repeat this. God's divinity is thus no prison in which he can only exist in and for himself, but rather his freedom, his choice to be in and for himself, but also for us and with us. Do you hear that? Bart is almost daring to say that God, as we know him in Jesus Christ, could no longer be God if he were not with us. God, as we know him in Jesus, could no longer be God if he were not to be with us. That's not to say that God depends on us to exist or to love, no. That's not what it means. Rather, His divine freedom, his divine prerogative to love decided before time that he should eternally be cleaved to us to be cleaved to this world in his own son. And that in itself is his true and perfect revelation of himself 
and his character. God is precisely God as we worship him in Jesus because he is with us, because he is in us, because he is for us. Emmanuel, then in Emmanuel today, Emmanuel forever. If God is with us in this way, he was never absent to begin with. There was no time or moment when you felt abandoned or forsaken or discarded that God was not right there with you, beside you, surrounding you, knowing exactly what you're going through because he was with you in the same pain, the same suffering, that same danger and loss, that same absurdity and randomness of life that he holds in his sovereign hand. In her reflections on the deeds of Joseph that first Christmas season, a New Testament scholar, Holly Heron, she just what she wrote. Wherever we find ourselves, we're waiting so long to be delivered from our sense of God's absence to a time and place where we know that God is with us. This doesn't necessarily mean it will be a place of certainty when and where we know the whole story. No, in, instead it will be a place where we will be invited to respond to what we see in front of us with righteousness, with justice and mercy that does not seek to shame or to disgrace and to even change direction when new information enables us to see more than we did see before. Like Joseph, this is our Christian life right now. We're invited by grace to respond in the most ridiculous faith, the most ridiculous leap of faith ever, to dare to suffer injustice so that we can be just and merciful, to suffer disgrace so that grace may abound for this person or that person with the little or the much that we know that we could believe especially knowing and trusting that God is with us in Jesus, Christ, who himself was born and adopted by our humanity. It's very curious that uh, the Gospel of Matthew began his Gospel really with the sort of the explanation and the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah. Emmanuel, God with us, the virgin shall conceive. That's how he started his Gospel. And then he finishes his gospel with the last words of the resurrected Jesus, scars in his hands and feet and his side. And his last words to his disciples, you, might, you would remember this, surely I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Emmanuel, always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus is still fulfilling that prophecy. And Jesus is still keeping his word, his promise to each one of you and me. Even to the very end of the age, the collapse of society. Seemingly the end of the world. Perhaps you're feeling that right now. But I am with you always, Emmanuel. Just as he has come down to earth to fulfill that promise. So this Advent season, let's buckle in. Let's buckle in with renewed faith. 
buckled in by the Holy Spirit. He fastens us and secures us in Jesus who is seated in heaven. As we are tossed in every sharp and surprising turn in life, God is with us. God is in us. God is for us to the glory of Christ our Lord, Emmanuel. To him be glory forever. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.